One of the most frequent battlegrounds between Jesus and the Pharisees was over the issue of the Sabbath. The Pharisees were aghast at what they considered to be Jesus' rather laissez-faire attitude toward the holy day. Time and again throughout the Gospels, they accused Jesus or his disciples or both of breaking the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. One such occasion occurs in Mark chapter 2, where Mark states that one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, to the disciples, they were merely gleaning these heads of grain and eating a light snack, but to the Pharisees, this constituted work. It was reaping and was therefore a clear violation of the law of God. Well, Jesus' response to the Pharisees is telling of his attitude toward the Sabbath day. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. It is these last two statements in Mark chapter 2 that command our attention this morning. See, the Pharisees had totally missed the mark when it came to understanding the Sabbath day, just as they had with the entire law. To them, the Sabbath ordinance was a rigid law handed down by a rigid God, and it was to be obeyed with meticulous precision, lest one's own righteousness and standing before God be impugned. Which is not unlike the way many Christians today approach church attendance or daily Bible reading. Something they do for God in order to establish their own righteousness and put God in their debt so that He is obligated to bless them with grace. It's the very essence of legalism. But Jesus says to the Pharisees, in their legalism, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In essence, essence, Jesus tells them, God doesn't need your Sabbath-keeping. He's not impressed by your rigorous, joyless adherence to the fourth commandment. The Sabbath is a gift, and you've totally missed it. God made it for your benefit, not for His. The Sabbath was made to serve man. Man was not made to serve the Sabbath. And then Jesus goes one step further by claiming to have authority over the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. What did Jesus mean? Well, many people think that the Sabbath ordinance was instituted at Mount Sinai. That the first time anybody had ever heard of the Sabbath day thing was Exodus chapter 20 when the law was given to the people of Israel through Moses, and therefore that it only applies to the Old Testament nation of Israel. 
But in Mark 2.27, Jesus seems to reach back even further beyond Mount Sinai to creation itself. The Sabbath was made for man, for all mankind. In other words, according to Jesus, the Sabbath day is a creation ordinance, like marriage in that way. It's part of God's original design for a perfect and unfallen humanity, untainted by the stain of sin. But if that is true, it raises an interesting and important question. Is the Sabbath day still in effect? And if so, should it be kept in the same way as was commanded of Old Covenant Israel? Those are the questions that I want to try to answer today, and they're not easy questions to answer. There's much disagreement today over the issue of Sabbath observance. There are at least three major views represented throughout church history with regard to what role, if any, the fourth commandment has in the ongoing life and worship of the church. There's the Sabbath day view which argues that the fourth commandment is part of the eternal moral law of God expressed in the Ten Commandments, and therefore the Sabbath day, Saturday, remains a day of rest and worship for the church. In other words, in the same way that we still don't murder, don't steal, and don't lie, we still ought to keep the Sabbath. This is the view of Seventh-day Adventists and other Christian Sabbatarians as they're known. Then there's the Christian Sabbath view, which says that ever since the resurrection of Christ and the dawning of the new covenant, the Sabbath day, Saturday, has been transformed into the Lord's day, Sunday. The spirit and intent of the fourth commandment remains the same, but Sunday is now the one day in seven that is to be kept holy through rest and worship. This has been the dominant view among the Protestant churches since since the Reformation. It's been the view of the Catholic Church throughout its history. Many of our more senior members here will remember a day and an age when certain blue laws were in place, meaning that restaurants and stores were prohibited from being open on the Lord's Day. Well, these blue laws reflected the influence which the Christian Sabbath view had on middle America until as recently as a few generations ago. Then, thirdly, there's the fulfillment view, which says that since Christ is the fulfillment of the law, Romans 10.4, then the Sabbath command was fulfilled in Christ in His death and resurrection. All believers enter into the final Sabbath rest of the new covenant, Hebrews 4. Therefore, the Sabbath command of the Old Covenant is no longer binding upon the New Covenant church. This is probably the dominant view of today's evangelicals, who will point out that while the other nine commandments are repeated in some way or some form in the New Testament, the Sabbath commandment is not. I would tend to agree if it were not for the fact that I believe the Sabbath ordinance predates the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. All three of these views have differing degrees of merit, and I personally hold to a hybrid of the second and the third view. I believe that the Sabbath command of the Old Covenant has been fulfilled in Christ, 
that through faith in him, we enter by faith into the Sabbath rest of the new covenant. Spiritually speaking, we who believe have entered back into Eden, into God's presence. But we've not yet entered into the true Sabbath rest in all of its fullness. So the Sabbath ordinance belongs to the Old Covenant, not merely to the Old Covenant. It belongs to the Old Creation, rather. And we have not yet entered into the new creation in all of its fullness. We've entered by faith spiritually into the new creation, but we are still bodily a part of this old creation. We live in this age between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. We we live in this age of already and not yet, where we have already received and entered into the benefits of Christ's new covenant work, and we've not yet entered into those benefits in all of their fullness and all of their consummation. Therefore, I think that while we still exist in these mortal bodies and while our souls are still prone to weakness and sin and strife and doubt and despair, I believe the spirit and the intent of the Sabbath day remains and that until the Lord comes, the Lord's day, namely Sunday, should be sanctified, kept holy by the new covenant church as a day of rest and worship, a day of recreation and restoration of both body and soul. However, this is where I, you'll, you'll find the hybrid view. What I just told you was the second view, the Christian Sabbath. Here's where the hybrid comes in, the third view. We must avoid the legalism which marked the Pharisees of Jesus' day and has often marked the church's Sabbath observance among Protestants ever since. After all, it is true. It is gloriously true what we sang earlier, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We are no longer under law. We, the New Covenant Church, are under grace, Romans 6.14. Therefore, we are free in Christ. And Paul tells us in Galatians 5.1 to never allow ourselves to become yokes or slaves under the law again under the yoke and bondage of slavery. So how do, we, how do we walk that line? Well, my aim this morning is to walk us through the development of the Sabbath throughout redemptive history, from its inception in the Garden of Eden, to its reaffirmation at Mount Sinai, to its transformation with the coming of Christ, and finally, to its consummation in the new heaven and the new earth. And then we'll conclude by examining how then the Sabbath should be kept holy by the New Covenant Church as a day of rest and worship. Because if it is true that the Sabbath was made for man, why would we miss out on this gift which God has given to man for our good? We neglect the Sabbath to our own harm. So let's begin in accordance with the purpose of this series in Genesis, in the beginning, with the inception of the Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it 
God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Three truths I want to point out from Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Truth number one is this. God made the Sabbath for all men. In other words, not just Israel. God made the Sabbath for all men. It's not explicit in this passage, and I would be the first one to tell you that, but I also think it's very clearly implied. The last thing that God did on the sixth day was to create man in his own image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, to breathe into man the breath of life. Genesis 2, 7. Man is the climax of God's creative power. It's the preeminent display of his creative glory. Everything in the first six days was geared towards establishing the covenant people in the covenant land. And on the seventh day, God completed that first covenant week, establishing for man, which men? All men in Adam, this rhythm of work and worship, work and worship, labor and rest. Remember that the week is a period that is not tied to any natural phenomenon. The day, for instance, that's the time that takes the earth to spin on its axis with respect to the sun. The month, it's the time it takes the moon to orbit the earth. The year, it's the time it takes the earth to orbit the sun. But where does the week come from? Well, the week is a divine unit of time, seven being a number symbolic of God's perfection. Just remember and go read Revelation if you doubt that. It's a number symbolizing God's perfection. It is a, the week is a divine unit of time established by our Creator to regulate for His image bearers our rhythm of life, this rhythm of work and worship. So the Sabbath commandment is not an old covenant ordinance given for Israel only at Mount Sinai to be set aside then when Christ came to mediate the new covenant as were all of the laws regarding sacrifices and ritual purity. The Sabbath doesn't belong to that category. The Sabbath day is a creation ordinance established from the beginning before the fall with the head of the human race for the benefit of all mankind, and therefore is commanded of Adam and all his posterity in no less a way than his marriage. Second, God made the Sabbath day holy. He sanctified it. The Hebrew word is kodesh. He set it apart from the other days and gave it a special purpose. In other words, the seventh day was established for Adam as a day that was not for common Use. It was a day that was made holy unto the Lord. To illustrate what that means, to, to make it holy, I want you to note that the same word in its noun form is used throughout the law to describe the tabernacle and its articles. The tabernacle was not a common tent, and it was not to be used for common use. It was sanctified, it was holy, it was consecrated to God, and it was to be used only for the worship of the God of Israel. The priests, therefore, could not use the tabernacle to host their weekly poker night after the evening sacrifices were completed. The golden lampstand, 
was holy to the Lord. It was not a common lampstand. The high priest, after he had finished performing his evening rites, could not take it out of the, of the tabernacle and use it to light his way back to his own tent. It was sanctified. It was made holy. It was consecrated for a divine purpose, the purpose of bearing the flames that illuminated the holy sanctuary. Well, the same word, the same phrase is used of the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is not a common day. It's, to be, it's not to be used. It was not to be used. However, Adam and Eve and their descendants wanted it. It was holy. It was sanctified to the Lord. It was consecrated for a special divine significance, which brings us to the third truth, which pertains to the purpose of the Sabbath day. What was God's purpose in sanctifying this seventh day? Well, God made the Sabbath day for rest and for worship. Now again, this is not explicit in Genesis 2, but it is implied, especially given what we learn from later revelation. Just as God worked in six days and rested on the seventh, that's Genesis 2.2, so He intended man to do the same, Genesis 2.15. And since worship was a major part of Israel's Sabbath-keeping, in, in generations to come, you can read about it in Numbers 28, 1 Chronicles 16, Psalm 92. What did they do on the Sabbath day? They gathered for worship. I don't think it's too much of a stretch then to assume that God designed the Sabbath day as a day for remembering, reflecting, resting, and rejoicing in all that the Lord had done, all of the works of God. What did Adam and Eve do on that first Sabbath day? They ceased from their labors, and they communed with the living God. In summary then, from the beginning, the Sabbath was one day in seven, set aside by God for all men to rest from their labors and to rejoice in the work of His hands. Well, the Sabbath was instituted by God when mankind was in a state of innocence. But you all know the story, even though we haven't gotten there yet. In Genesis 3, the sin of Adam plunged the entire human race into sin and darkness. And millennia passed when finally, Genesis chapter 12, God called a man named Abraham out of Babylon, made a covenant with him, and promised to make of him a great nation. Centuries later, Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, were in bondage in Egypt when the Lord delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and he brought them out to his presence at Mount Sinai, and he forged another covenant with them. Once again, God was preparing to do what he had done in the beginning, to bring a covenant people into a covenant land to enjoy his covenant blessing. And once again, just like he had done in the first covenant, he gave to Israel, this this covenant people, a set of commands. He, He established a covenant that was stipulated upon conditions expressed in commandments. In these ten commandments, the fourth of them, God reaffirms the Sabbath ordinance. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you 
or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in this reaffirmation of the original Sabbath ordinance, the Sabbath is once again tied back to God's work of creation. The Sabbath day was sanctified as a day of rest and remembrance of God's work as the Creator. Well, 40 years later, Moses and the people of Israel stand on the plains of Moab overlooking the promised land, Preparing to enter in, Moses is giving his one final address to the people of Israel before he dies and Joshua will lead them into the land. And he repeats for Israel the terms of the covenant and they renew the covenant there on the plains of Moab. And when he comes to this part about the Sabbath ordinance, he adds another element. He says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Moses explicitly states that it is because God redeemed them from Egypt by his great power that they are to observe the Sabbath day. So now now we have two elements tied to the Sabbath day, two great works of God. On the Sabbath day, we are are intended to remember God's great work of creation, His great work as creator, and we're to remember God's great work of redemption, His great work as redeemer. And I want you to notice that both of these remembrances are invitations to rest. God created the world, not us. He sustains the world and not us. And so on His day, we remember this fact and we enjoy what He has made. We rest. Likewise, God saves and redeems his people apart from our own works. He keeps us saved apart from our own works by his grace. And so therefore, on this day, we remember his great work of redemption and we rest. Now, Exodus 31, where we find one further element added to the Sabbath ordinance. Here we find that God made the Sabbath day a sign of the covenant between him and his covenant people Israel. Exodus 31 verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. He says it's a sign. It's a sacrament. It's a visible symbol of a spiritual reality. Circumcision, for example, was a sign of the Old Covenant. It set the men of Israel apart from the men of every other nation as belonging to God. And it signified the spiritual realities of the circumcision of the heart, of justification by faith. Passover was a sign of the Old Covenant. It signified that God redeems his people through the body and the blood of a sacrificial lamb. Well, now in Exodus 31, Moses says that the Sabbath day is given to Israel also as a sign of the old covenant. 
signifying that Israel is the special recipient of God's covenant grace, His works of creation and redemption. The the keeping of the Sabbath was a sign that set apart Israel from all the other nations that surrounded them that did not keep the Sabbath. In the same way that you got up this morning, prepared your family, got in a car, and drove past 90% of the houses that you passed, they're not doing what we're doing today. For 90% of the other households in Nixa, they're home doing what they want on their day, living their own lives to their own glory. And so what does it say to them when we get up and we say, no, this day does not belong to me. This is the Lord's day. I will go to the house of the Lord. I will meet with him. I will rest in him. It becomes a sign for us and for all of them. It's a testimony that we're the people of God. Well, now we come to Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. By his death and resurrection, Jesus did not annul or set aside the Sabbath ordinance. He fulfilled and transformed it into a weekly celebration of the full and final redemption which he accomplished by his death and the new creation which he inaugurated by his resurrection from the dead. And so the Sabbath has been transformed. The Sabbath of the old creation has been transformed into the Lord's day of the new creation. And I base that upon three arguments. Number one, there's there's an argument to be made from the transformation of the covenant signs. All of the signs of the old covenant have been transformed into corresponding signs of the new covenant. Think about circumcision. Circumcision was a sign of anticipation. It was given to infants before they could believe, before they were born again. They were given a sign of promise that one day there is going to come a spirit who will circumcise you in your hearts and you will be justified by faith. Well, we go into the new covenant and suddenly the sign of justification by faith and of regeneration is no longer circumcision. It is baptism, which is a sign of accomplishment, which is why only believers ought to be baptized. Those who have been born again and those who have believed, those who have received the sign of the promise. It's not that there's no sign, it's that the sign has been transformed. Circumcision, justification by faith and regeneration has been transformed into baptism, which points to the same spiritual realities. Passover was a sign of the old covenant. It was a sign of anticipation. Yes, it looked back on the great act of redemption known as the Exodus, but everyone in Israel knew that that was not the the Genesis 3.15 redemption. That was not the full and final redemption. How did they know? They had to slaughter the lamb every year. So they were still awaiting a great act of redemption to come. And Passover was a reminder that there is coming a day when a Passover lamb will be slaughtered. And he will not need to be slaughtered again year after year. But his blood will mediate a new covenant and your sins will be finally forgiven. And so believing Israelites partook of the Sabbath, or partook rather of the 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 Passover, in hope every year of the time when the Messiah would come to do in all of its universal fullness what Moses had done in its typological significance in the Exodus. 
It's not that there's no supper anymore. It's that the supper of the old covenant has been transformed now, now that the Passover lamb has come into the supper of the new covenant, or as we call it, the Lord's Supper. Just as circumcision was transformed into baptism, so Passover has been transformed into the Lord's Supper in which we look back upon the body and blood of Christ. We don't sacrifice him over again. We remember what he has done fully and finally, and we rest in it. And so it makes sense to me, see if it makes sense to you, that if circumcision was not abolished but was transformed into baptism, and Passover was not abolished, but was transformed into the Lord's Supper, it seems to me that the third sign of the Old Covenant, which was the Sabbath day, was not abolished, but was transformed into the Lord's Day of the New Covenant. Does that make sense? I think it's biblical. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the new creation and the ultimate redemption has come. And Jesus has won for us the eternal Sabbath rest. And so under the new covenant, the people of God celebrate the accomplishment of His work. The accomplishment of that redemption. And as we eagerly await that final Sabbath rest to come, we meet weekly resting and worshiping on the Lord's Day, which is the new covenant Sabbath. Second argument comes from the Lord's Day being, or the second argument for the Lord's Day being the New Covenant Sabbath arises from Mark 2.28. That passage where Jesus says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Just, Just marinate in that statement for a second. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. It's one of the clearest instances in which Jesus claimed identity with God the Father. See, the Jews to whom Jesus spoke, the Pharisees to whom Jesus spoke, they knew well and good that the Sabbath was God's day. It was the day that God had blessed and sanctified and set aside for his people to rest and to worship him. And now Jesus says, the Sabbath is my day. I am Lord of the Sabbath. As creator and redeemer of the world, the Sabbath day belongs to me. And what was the point of the Sabbath? Rest. The Sabbath day has always been about rest. That's what the word means. The word sabbat means to rest. But true rest was always only a promise until the Lord of the Sabbath came. Come to me, all who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The Lord of the Sabbath has come. He has brought his people into a new Sabbath rest by faith, by his resurrection from the dead on the first day of the week. He has ushered in a new creation and a final Sabbath rest, and that's why in the new covenant we celebrate the Sabbath not on Saturday, but on the Lord's Day. Third, simply comes from the practice of the early church. Let me list for you some evidence. Number one, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, rose from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week, thus ushering in the new covenant and the new creation. Immediately thereafter, Sunday became known as the Lord's Day. 
All right, so number one, you have the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday. Number two, in Acts chapter 20, verses 7 to 11, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, and quite possibly Acts 2, 1, we find that the early church immediately began gathering together on the first day of the week for the purpose of the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread or the Lord's Supper, and the giving of offerings to the poor. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 16, according to Paul, this seems to be the habit of all the churches, at least all the churches of Galatia, and he's commanding it for the churches of Corinth. Okay, So, number one, Jesus was raised on Sunday. Number two, immediately the churches began gathering on Sunday for the purpose of the Word and worship and the Lord's Supper. Third, Revelation 1.10, we find the Apostle John in exile on the island of Patmos. And he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And it's at that time that he sees a vision of the risen Lord Jesus that becomes the revelation. I think it's quite significant for our discussion that John refers to Sunday as the Lord's day. As in a day of special significance belonging to the Lord. Think about it. Every day belongs to Jesus. It's what it means to be God. But evidently, according to the inspired apostle John, one of those days that belongs to Jesus belonged to him in such a special way that it was to be called the Lord's Day, and John sanctified it by being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. My suggestion is that we follow John's example and we sanctify the Lord's day, and we gather in the Spirit on His day. But there is coming the consummation of the Sabbath rest that was, com- that was accomplished in the death and resurrection of the Lord of the Sabbath. This is what Hebrews 3 and 4 is all about. The author of Hebrews speaks of this final Sabbath rest where he warns his readers of the danger of hearing the word preached, but not hearing it with faith. And he warns them, he says, just like the Israelites of old fell away because of an evil, unbelieving heart and therefore were rejected from entering the promised land, so there remains a danger of people like you and me being in the visible church, being rejected from God's eternal covenant land because we don't actually have true and persevering faith. But notice what he says. Hebrews 4, 9 to 11. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us, okay, he's speaking to First Baptist Nixa by the Spirit. Let us strive to enter that rest so that none of us may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Get inside the author's head there. Evidently, the Sabbath rest that he is exhorting us to enter into is equivalent to eternal life in God's covenant land and is entered into only by persevering faith in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we're not there yet. We're there spiritually by faith But we mustn't give up persevering or else we won't enter into the land in all of its full reality. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. 
Therefore, there remains a consummation of the Sabbath rest. There remains a final Sabbath rest to come when the true covenant people of God will come back into Eden, back into God's presence to enjoy Him forever. So let me summarize. The Sabbath was instituted as part of God's design for the original creation. It was a day of rest and worship for all people, number one. The Sabbath was reaffirmed as part of the covenant between God and Israel, and it was a sign of the covenant and a celebration of His works of creation and redemption, number two. The Sabbath was transformed by Christ in His death and resurrection from the Sabbath of the old creation to the Sabbath of the new creation. And the celebration of his accomplished work of redemption and an anticipation of the new creation, which we celebrate on the Lord's Day. And number four, the Sabbath will be consummated when we enter into the eternal rest of the new heaven and the new earth. From Genesis to Revelation, that's the progression of the Sabbath, and we're still smack in the middle of number three. We're not there yet. And I suggest to you, try this on and see if it fits. I suggest to you that in this age between the first and second comings of Christ, the spirit and the intent of the Sabbath is to be observed by the new covenant church on the Lord's day, which is Sunday, the first day of the week. The Lord's day is a weekly foretaste of the eternal Sabbath rest to come. When we are born again and we are brought into saving faith in Jesus Christ, we enter spiritually into that eternal Sabbath rest. But we do not yet experience the full reality of that rest. We are not yet in God's presence. He has not yet wiped every tear from our eye. There is still in this life and in our experience mourning and crying and death and pain. There is still sin and struggle and strife. There is still doubt and despair and depression. The first things have not yet passed away, but we do get foretastes of the glory to come. We are still invited to come, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that coming and that tasting and that seeing and that enjoying in this life is best experienced in the corporate gathering of God's people on God's day in the Spirit of Christ through the Word. Now, I am well aware of the questions that this topic raises in the minds of many, and most of them start with, but can I, fill in the blank, on the Sabbath? Right? What does it mean for the New Covenant Church to keep the Sabbath day holy? Well, I'm not going to do your work for you. I'm not going to give you a list of do's and don'ts. I'm going to suggest to you four principles for keeping the Sabbath day holy, and then I'm going to urge you to go work these principles out in your own life and in your own family. And we'll work through these next week during Connect. Principle number one. If what I've said is true, here's principle number one. The Lord's day should be a day of rest and worship. It should be a day of restoration of both body and soul. In general, then, this means that you ought to rest from your usual labors and do those things 
which restore and recreate your body. Take a nap. Take a walk. Take a run. Do whatever it is that restores and recreates your body for the week ahead. God has given you this day as a gift for just that. And then it means that you should gather with the Lord's people that the Lord may restore your soul through the word and worship. Come here on Sunday morning and allow the Lord to refill your soul and then go home and refill your body. That's what number one means. Number two, the Lord's day should be sanctified. It should be set apart. It should be made holy from the other six for yourself and for your family. So together, you you should think about ways to show yourself, to show your children, to show your unbelieving family and friends and neighbors that Sunday is different. It's different. It's not my day. It's the Lord's day. If your Sunday doesn't look any different than your unbelieving family's Sunday, there's a problem. Number three. The Lord's day should be a delight and not a duty. I get this from Isaiah 58, where the Lord calls upon his people not only to keep the Sabbath day holy, but to call it a delight. With the promise that then, if you will call the Sabbath day a delight, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. Trust me in this, he says. Take my promise of Sabbath rest and try it on. The Sabbath was made for man. It is a gift of grace. It is good for you, for your body and for your soul. Don't make it a drudgery. Our God is a God of boundless joy, and He wants you to share in His delight. Number four, and this is important. I want everybody to look up here. How you practice the Lord's Day is a matter of personal conscience and Christian freedom, and none of us should be the judge of any other of us in this regard. In other words, don't be a legalist. Don't be a Pharisee. It doesn't end well for them. Now, I've given you my opinion on this issue, which I believe is backed up by Scripture and the history of the church. But you may not have found my argument convincing, and that's okay. Paul ran into that. And he wrote to the Roman church. There were some in the Roman church that said, I think the Lord's Day is the New Covenant Sabbath. And there were some who said, Sabbaths are done now that we're in the New Covenant and we're no longer under law but under grace. And here's what he said to them. He said, Romans 14.5, One person esteems one day as better than another. That would be me while another esteems all days alike. Maybe that's you. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So all Paul asks of us, all I ask of you, is to think through it and make your choice based on conviction. Don't just float with the cultural current because that current never flows in the direction of godliness. Live by conviction. 
close with this word from Isaiah the prophet. Here's a promise for you. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath and from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. Isn't that what you want? Here's how he tells you to do it. Sanctify his day. Then you will find delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. That's a promise I want to experience. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Remember his holy day. And sanctify.